0: Welcome to Weird Sauce, a podcast about formulas. In these conversations, I intend to rethink with you the rhythms of our lives. From the exceptional to the routine, I wander into the patterns, the alchemy of experiences, good and bad, from scientists to high achievers. Life is not a long, quiet river, so follow me upstream into the extraordinary, the storms, the mishaps the components that may inspire you today and tomorrow. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Your health is your responsibility and that of your physician. Always seek advice from your physician before choosing any lifestyle interventions you may have heard in this podcast. Jolene, good afternoon. Thank you for uh, welcoming us um, in your world, uh, here in Singapore, Uh, and welcome to Weird Sauce. Could you please introduce yourself for our audience?
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. My name is Jolene, I'm the founder and CEO of Urban Tiller. Urban Tiller is Asia's first integrated farm-to-table ag-tech business, and we deliver hyper-locally sourced produce within eight hours of harvest. So, you are based in Singapore? Yes, yes. I've grown up in Singapore. Uh, I left the country for school for two years in Europe, and then I came back for university, Um, you know, did a few things and then started Urban Tiller sometime last year in August 2020. Right in the middle of a massive pandemic. Right. Right after Singapore came out of our circuit breaker lockdown. Yeah. So was that your training at school? Um, No, not at all. Actually, I, I had a liberal arts education background, uh, had no idea about anything to do with agriculture. So I really stumbled into the field. Um, and how that happened was when COVID broke out, I had left my corporate job. I didn't like the life um, of a corporate job and I wanted to do something in sustainability and social impact. I honestly had no idea where to start. So there was a period of time right before lockdown. Um, I was a special needs teacher for a short while. And then I actually joined a educational tech startup as a co-founder. Um, and back then, what the startup was trying to do was focus on there is a gap between what students learn in school um, and their idea of how to partake in sustainability and social impact. Right. I experienced it myself when we're in school. We want to do good. We want to make a difference. We want to have a meaningful job. But I think ideas that we have of sustainability, a good life often are always in disjunct from sort of what real jobs in the industries look like. So with my co-founders back then, what we wanted to do was to encourage conversation um, and interactions between students, young people, people who are looking for career switches um, with industries that were lesser known um, or had fewer traditional pathways to them. 2020 was the year of food and agriculture because COVID broke out. Everyone was thinking about food security, where food came from. So we ran a series of events um, in the opportunity and challenges when it came to food security in Singapore and Asia. Um, so what happened then was we started organizing a series of what I call unconventional hackathons and we wanted people to come in and sit through these programs with us where it's I say unconventional because in a hackathon you're expected to come up with a solution to a problem um, in 24 hours and you get a big prize. For us, we realized that agriculture was so complex and food production was so complex that we wanted people to just come in critically map out stakeholders in the system, um, understand how people are connected, how systems were connected, um, and really wanted them to see where the challenges and opportunities lie. Um, and it was it was a well-run event. I think we attracted more than 60 participants with a wait list, more than 40 partners from the industry, all the way from MNCs, big agri companies, VCs, food tech startups, um, and businesses, farmers as well. So that was really my beginning in this industry and thinking about food, thinking about agriculture and how it connects us um, as city dwellers um, to where our food actually comes from. So while we were running this series of programs, I actually met my current business partner um, and the two of us actually run an innovation studio for food feed and agri-tech startups with circular economy principles for Asia.
0: So for for those um, in the audience who are not familiar with Singapore as as a context, could you please explain? Because it's it's hard to imagine that Singapore as a city state is um, you know is dependable to some extent, very highly for food um, security. So could you please explain the specificity of Singapore context?
1: Hundred percent. So Singapore is you know forty minutes drive across from end to end. Uh, we import more than ninety percent of our food. So back in April 2019, the Singapore Food Agency came up with a plan called the 30 by 30 plan. Uh, What that means is actually to achieve 30% of local production of our nutritional needs by the year 2030. So they announced this and we had 10 years to think about this. uh, To increase from something less than 10% to 30% is a huge jump, right? Singapore has been disenfranchised pretty much from food production and agriculture for the past two generations. Um, in fact, in the 1960s, we still had more than 2,000 farms. We still had people involved in pig farming. We had people growing fruits. Um, but over the last 50 years of urbanization, a lot of that has gone away. Um, a lot of farming activity has gone away and we've shifted significantly uh, to much smaller pieces of land being dedicated to agriculture and food. Um, and there's only been a very recent sort of renaissance of people thinking about urban food production um, and food security, right? So. The 30 by 30 plan when it was announced has three major baskets Um, they would like to achieve nutritional needs in three main areas of leafy greens, eggs and fish Um, and these are sort of the areas that can conceivably be managed in a city state that is uh, highly, highly cosmopolitan, highly sort of urbanized. So I think uh, the opportunity that we see there is that there is a lot of space for tech-enabled technology, um, smart farming, urban farming, things that take up less space and less resources to come into play. Um, so there's really been, you know, a lot of investment coming in, a lot of um, tech, a lot of interest in the scene. So Singapore became the first country to sort of like allow the selling of um, alternative protein. Uh, so just chicken was the first one. We now have a university course in alternative protein. And I think that's really where the focus um, is right now uh, when it comes to producing food for us, especially after what happened with COVID. People thinking about uh, panic buying, people thinking about sort of borders being shut in a country that's so dependent on foreign imports um, for there to be some kind of food security here and self-reliance.
0: So tell us more about your actual business model and your actual Products, if there are any products involved, because I think in the in my mind, if I was listening to this, I would think, is this a technological enabler, or is it somebody that actually produces food, or is it somebody who who sells food, or is it a mixture of these things? So, just help me clarify this.
1: Yeah, to properly explain that, I think I need to go back to sort of the beginnings of this business and the questions that I was asking. Um, So, when we first started talking to farmers and talking to people in the space. One thing that I noticed that came up a lot was, okay, Singapore's focusing on increasing local food production. What happens to then the demand for local food, right? Is there a gap somewhere? So what we did know is that the cost of farming in a city like Singapore Is a lot more expensive than farming in what we usually imagine as open fields of growing food and agriculture and uh, having farmers who work on the land, right? I think it's a very different image that we have uh, versus something that's happening inside the city. So one thing that we found out was, okay, urban produced food can be expensive. It's, it's a lot more expensive. There are a lot more benefits. But also, how do we open up a market for that, right? It's an emerging business model, and it needs a new kind of economy and a new kind of access to market for it to survive. Just for some context, um, vegetables coming in from our neighboring countries like Thailand, Malaysia, um, let's just say leafy greens and Asian greens that, that we Singaporeans have all the time, could be coming in at $1 to $2 per kilogram. To grow that in an urban farm setting could be anywhere from 5 to 10 times more expensive. right? Um, and that comes with the cost of land, the cost of manpower, tech, electricity, um, and all of these farming setups that require intensive capex to build infrastructure for as well. So then the question comes, To be, how do these farmers survive? Who are they selling to? Um, Is there a viable financial model for these farms to survive? Um, And at that point in time, what we wanted to do was to explore hey, is it possible to create value for the consumers such that there is a possibility that people are paying a little bit more of a premium? But not just for the fact that it's grown locally or sustainably, but actually because customers appreciate something. Um, and the business part, my business partner and I really zoomed in on the idea of freshness. Because we know that with leafy greens especially, um, a lot of these leafy greens actually lose a lot of their nutrient content within the first 24 hours of harvest. So we identify that as sort of um, a bucket and a segment of the food that we eat that needs that kind of freshness. right? For example, things like baby spinach. right? They lose up to 90% of their vitamin K within the first 24 hours of harvest. What that means is that we as consumers are going to a supermarket uh, where the produce that you see on the shelves might have spent anywhere up to two weeks um, on the supply chain. You're paying for something that looks like vegetables, tastes like vegetables, but doesn't actually deliver the full nutritional content um, for you when you're eating that meal. So it's not just about food security, it's also about nutrient awareness. And that's a term that we use in circular economy design principles as well when it comes to not just content and calories, but are you actually giving yourself the best kind of nutrient quality as well. Uh, So we zoomed in on on sort of freshness as the main focus, and we asked ourselves, what do we need to make freshness happen? Right, And we said, let's be crazy, let's just say that we're going to deliver within eight hours of harvest. How do we make that happen right and as a team i think it was that we saw this surge and proliferation of urban farms in singapore so we knew that there has to be produce Um, and a lot of these farms are small enough that they probably cannot sell to a supermarket which requires a very highly consistent volume the procurement process is difficult Uh, supermarkets might say oh you give us 10 kilos every day we pay you for what we manage to sell And with fresh produce, wasted produce, you can't take it back. It's not like a commodity that you can store. Um, So for us, we realized that the only way to work with our farmers and lock in supply was to give our farmers a peace of mind, which is that whatever we take from you, we'll pay for in full. There's no such thing as consignment. The problem becomes ours. We figure a way to upcycle the nutrients to sell it as fresh as possible to maintain the quality for the customers. Um, So that's how we started. Right as a business, how we run is we take from the farmers, hyper locally sourced. Most of my farmers are indoor urban farms, Um, so fully controlled environment agriculture. uh, Because of that, most of them don't use pesticides, um, and that also reduces the amount of water use. When it comes to controlled environment agriculture, we're saving up to ninety percent of water use compared to traditional, like sort of uh, conventional open field agriculture. And it's just a lot more resource efficient in that way. Additionally, the other thing that we were trying to solve was that we knew up to 40 to 70 percent of the food that comes from international imports actually is wasted along the supply chain. So before it even arrives on our plate, 40 to 70 percent is lost due to damage, due to you know rotting and due to just movement along that supply chain. So for us, we saw that in, in a more sustainable economy, what should be happening with food production, um, especially in Asia, where you have billions of people to feed in the next 10 years, is the decentralization of food. Um, decentralization of production, decentralization of distribution to reduce logistics costs and also carbon emissions that come along with moving and distributing something as important as food. So we asked ourselves like, yeah, you know, that's that's a model that both enables a more sustainable way of distribution, but also a more sort of like sustainable way when it comes to ensuring freshness and quality of that produce. So that's how we started. Um, So these days we started in Singapore, we delivered our first produce in September 2020, in the middle of it, it's been going on for about nine months. Um, I keep very, very close relationships with my farmers to understand uh, how I can help them, how to help them diversify their assortment and also deliver the best quality produce to my customers. Right, So um, on Urban Tiller, you can order directly to your household in the form of Asian greens, salad greens, microgreens, herbs, um, the full selection, um, even ready-to-eat salad boxes. So salad boxes are something that we pair with kale, chard, lettuce, tomatoes, microgreens. And it's a really good way to get introduced to the kind of produce that's growing here um, and for you to have a fully local salad that was grown here. Uh Yeah. And so, in terms of
0: uh, when you say customers, my customers, are we talking about so direct to customers uh, via technology, assume websites and, and yeah. direct order? Do you also have uh, larger clients like uh, either independent uh, shops or restaurants directly, or even companies who? make food for their employees?
1: Yeah, so one of the things is we're starting to do that and trying to. The bulk of my customers are still consumers and households, um, but I'm trying to push in the direction of also supplying to restaurants and making sure that we're able to connect to that market. I think it's very difficult to crack the market for local farmers unless we're also able to get the B2B market to play with us because... The usual model for F&B, for food and beverage businesses in Singapore, is that margins are so tight. So everyone wants to get the best quality stuff at the lowest price. Um, and that often happens with imports because we, we're just so used to being abundantly supplied with food. Um, and when the conversation begins about sourcing locally, there are two big problems. One is the cost of production is much higher. And secondly, there's actually a limited assortment of how much we can provide. So with a fine dining restaurant, for example, you might be needing seasonal items from the most exotic carrots to the best sort of like Brussels sprouts. And these are things that people actually don't understand um, why they're not growing in Singapore, even though we seem to have a lot of farming going on these days. A lot of it has to do with the growing technology. A lot of it has to do with the effort that goes into growing that food and understanding different parts of our diet and our food basket in that sense to understand what can be grown here. How do we encourage the growing of more of it as much as possible, but also balancing that fine line with cost um, and the technology required and expertise required to grow it.
0: So, in terms of um, education, so you said it's an intric- intricately connected. The idea that you understand what are you buying, with the fact that this is actually quite unique as an offering. So, how do you, how are you going to educate, so to speak, your client?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's a very complex question. Um, I don't know the full answer to it, but I think my approach to it so far has been. You know, in, in the past few years of doing work in the space, um, it really has appeared to me that consumers are not interested in being educated just for the sake of it. You can't make people sit down and listen to you. You can't make people pay extra to be educated. You can't make people pay to be sustainable. Uh, you, you can't make people pay for an idea, oh. right? So I think for me, I'm lucky enough to be in a space where I'm providing a product to a consumer that they can taste. Food is very personal. It's very emotional. And I think when they do taste the difference because of the freshness and because of the quality, that's when they want to start a conversation. So even though the product is simple, right? um, They have an e-commerce experience, they receive vegetables that they can eat and they can cook. But I think the magic really happens when they go like, oh, so why is this different? Why have I never had something like that before? Where does it come from? Now I want to understand. And I think that's when the magic comes in, right? Where you're able to have that moment of engagement, you're able to create community, you're able to create those questions to tell a story behind the product that you have.
0: So another question I think which I have in relation to how central food is to health um, is, you know, it, it's it's been very clear during COVID that um, the last bastion of enjoyment or happiness or relief was coming from the food experience. And sadly, the food experience for a lot of people was debased. As And I would say that assuming what I, I, I you know, the word and the, the power of the word. But by debased, I mean that you basically were ordering away rather than cooking for yourself. You couldn't really go directly to a farmer, for example, in the middle of a lockdown to buy food. Maybe you don't know how to cook. So... How intricately do you think um, the education bit is is necessary at the societal level Mm -hmm. on the relevance of food Mm -hmm. and the difference between one food and another? Because they all name the same thing. So how do we make a difference between your product that you just shown and a salad that's packaged reasonably equally and you don't really have as a customer an understanding of how these two products are completely different.
1: Yes, hundred percent. That's a lot in you know, one <laughs> question. No, but it's important. Um, and and I say that because it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. Deep down inside, one thing that I think about a lot is that Singapore is a food paradise. Everyone knows that. You know, you can have a full meal for less than three U.S. dollars. You get it. Everywhere, there are food centers everywhere. Um, Food is cheap, right? It's in fact, sometimes cheaper to not cook. Um, And I think there's a huge question about accessibility, right? Um, Being in the business, I know for a fact that not everyone's going to pay for a salad that is twice or three times the price of something you could get outside um, and not think about it and just, just have it. There is a question about accessibility, affordability. Um, and you know, when it comes back to the conversation of local, locally producing 30% of our food, who gets to afford that 30%? Right. Like, pardon my language, but is it only expats? Is it people earning a certain, like, income? Um, and how do we then democratize, in that sense, sustainability and well-being? Um, and of course, the industry will tell you over time, as we scale up, prices will come down. But we all know that if there's a barrier to scaling up, that price will never come down. Um, So what is the cost of doing things sustainably and making sure that consumers are still able to access and want to make that choice? Um, I think the difference is difficult. On the supermarket shelves, all your produce is undifferentiated. You have a label of where it comes from. You don't have an indication of how it was grown, who was growing it. Um, or when it was harvested, you don't have an indication of freshness. Uh, you can visually tell, right, if something looks good or not, but sometimes it looks good because of other stuff being added into it. So I think it's something that consumers also need to do, right, which is to keep, uh, your merchants and businesses accountable, uh, as to giving you as much information as possible about what, what and how that product is made. Um, that's something that I think we as a society have not focused on purely because of convenience. It's so easy to just buy something that you need and not think about it. Um, the, the levels of complexity and middle people who are sort of handling the food that we eat before we even buy it at the supermarket is a huge, huge barrier for us to understand where it comes from.
0: So, julian, you are you are uh, very young. You are an entrepreneur. You're an entrepreneur within food. It's a, it's a very demanding um, uh, sort of well, environment and industry. And on top of this, you're you're basically an entrepreneur that's starting a business right in the middle of a pandemic. So these are very unique attributes. So the question that I would have to you is, what about your food? What about your own lifestyle? Is it a main component? Is food a main component of your own lifestyle behavior? And and if not, um, why not?
1: Yeah, no. Okay. So, of course, after I started the business, there were a lot of moments of magic. Uh, growing up, I, you know, I grew up in a Singaporean Chinese household. We didn't have salad regularly. Like, it's not, it was not common to me. When I moved to Europe, it became very common. But it was really the turning point when i started talking to the farmers when i was on the farms um, visiting them all the time and tasting the produce they had and there's a moment of magic and they're so generous every time you're on the farm they let you taste everything and and there's that moment of childlike wonder and you're like i wish other people could taste this because it's incredible like i've tasted cherry tomatoes that Tastes like candy because it's just, it's like caramelized candy and, uh, kale and lettuce and even fruiting crops that taste so good, um, that I'm like, why has never, why has any, why has nobody sort of demanded this level of quality, right? Do, Do they even know that this level of quality is growing right here? So I think. That was the turning point. Of course, because of the work that I do, there is a lot of opportunity to have salad and greens. So I think that's definitely changed a lot. Uh, but as you said, you know, being an entrepreneur and it's demanding, there are days where I just have no time to eat, but when I, when I do have time to eat, I, I try to have as much as possible, uh, greens, a good balance, and also try to keep things, um, as healthy as possible. One thing that I keep too, no matter how busy I am, is at least, um, getting exercise in, uh, five days a week. I think that's a, that's a good way to maintain sanity.
0: And in your experience of, uh, interacting with schools, uh, young, younger, younger generation, how uh, intrinsically essential do you think it is that nutrition becomes uh, a part of the curriculum, whether it is uh, at home, at school, or ideally in both of these contexts?
1: This is a very interesting question because I think it connects to the concern I was talking about when it comes to accessibility. Um, you know, When I graduated from university, a lot of my classmates and, and college mates, they wanted to have a certain lifestyle. But as a young person, they also knew that they did not have the financial and job security to afford a certain kind of lifestyle. So they were used to a certain, okay, I need to be having salad, I need to be having like a good balance of macros. And then you go out and you start, you know, working your first job. If you're lucky, you can afford all of these things. Um, but otherwise, there's a real challenge, right? There was a time where I, I know I was eating just, just bread and whatever else I could find, um, things that were low cost, things that were easy. And I think it's a, it's a real conversation to have as to whose responsibility is it um, to provide access to good food and well-being, right? Food being a huge part of it, especially in Singapore. Um, and given the climate, given sort of the space that we have for food, given, you know, how easy it is to get delivery and so many options these days.
0: So a question also that I would have um, about Singapore is we're a small city-state and we have a small population, reasonably small. I mean, it's very dense, but we have a small small population, under 5 million, I think. Um, How do you imagine the future considering climate change, Mm -hmm. considering all the issues you brought up? Yes, in our conversation here on sustainability of food, import of food, and also on health of that mm. small population. So the health of our population here is intrinsically connected to its future as a sustainable country. So how do you think your food and your project is part of that?
1: No, I think growing up in Singapore, um, we all know that Singapore can be a very high-stress, high-paced society. Um, it's sort of like we're always tied up in our work with expectations of what your lifestyle must look like. Um, food is, you know, both escape but also such a baseline to our health and well-being as well. Um, you know, some people may know that we have a very high incidence of type two diabetes, um, heart disease even is coming up, cancer as well. So I think food constitutes a very very good baseline. But you know, growing up Singaporean, I know it's a difficult conversation to have precisely because cost of living is high. Right. Cost of living is high. Access to nutrition is there. But how accessible is that for someone who has no choice? That's a very different conversation. There have been plenty of documentaries made about food insecurity in Singapore. And I think that boils down so much to how are people starving in a place that only has food, you know, for less than three US dollars a meal? Um, And we know that there are people surviving on instant noodles um, for the week, you know, crackers and bread and dry food. And it, it's really a conversation that warrants the term food security, right? Security is a word that's heavily militarized. It's it's political, right? It's heavily political because, well, the food the food prices and and what's available is intri- it's it's immensely political, right? And I think a lot of support needs to come in, uh, both from the top down, but also from the ground up for us to seek out alternatives to not just afford that food for ourselves, but afford it for the people around us, because I think that constitutes the social fabric as well. Um, And I think the future really does depend on having enough um, support for people who can't afford that nutrition on their own, um, be it through groups on the ground who are rescuing food, rescuing fresh produce, being able to distribute that. There are a few great groups doing this, um, including the food bank and things like that. But I think there needs to be a larger conversation about, okay, it's a very individual, very personal experience with food that... Also, because of that, a lot of people don't talk about, right? Um, I don't tell people when I go to the supermarket that I don't think I can afford this at this point, right? Um, you go on and, and pick something else, right? But I think that's a, that's a very real conversation people have. Um, it's, it's definitely not the same kind of experience you have, for example, in London, um, but everyone's dealing with different levels of that kind of anxiety when it comes to affording food.
0: And I think um, there is probably a place for a higher level of, of governmental thinking about what, how food impacts the quality of what your population life mm-hmm. capacity is. So what I mean by this is you cognitively and physically as good as what your lifestyle allows you to be. Mm-hmm. So if you have a debased, popu- I'm gonna use that word again, it's annoying, but I will. Um, if you have a debased nutrition yes. at the core of the population, so yes, the population is fed, mm-hmm. but it's not fed at a nutritional standard. That means they're healthy and their brain is functioning really, well, mm-hmm. what kind of output do you have, and sustainability do you have in the long term? Yeah. So that that is a core question, particularly so for something as small as Singapore. Mm. And I think perhaps having people like yourselves and um, initiative like yourselves should basically reach higher up in the pyramid of decision making to governments. And how do you think? that's something that you may or may not consider uh, lobbying, so to speak. Uh, It's a big word, but...
1: For sure, I think as an early stage startup, I know for a fact that I'm still focusing a lot on growing the assortment of food that I can bring to my customers because I've stayed very, very true to sourcing hyper-locally. There is a limitation to what is being grown and what can be grown right now, right? A lot of it is leafy greens. Um, And when I send out information to my customers, uh, the first thing they ask for is, hey, we love your product, can we have more? Right? Can we have things like carrots, eggplants, potatoes? We want all of these things that we see on, on, you know, lifestyle channels and then on a restaurant menu. Like, why can't we buy them? Um, And I think that's because Singaporeans have been so disenfranchised um, from this conversation of food production. Uh, There's no educational pathway to a career in agriculture. No one, you know, has that option here unless you leave the country and come back and decide that's what you want to do. Um, But I think that's the gap. The gap is, okay, you have a healthy and sustainable option. Um, right now, as a startup, I'm, I'm trying very much to keep prices as competitive as possible, but also trying to compensate the, the farmers fairly. And I think that's where the government really needs to step in um, when it comes to providing support to the food producers themselves to enable them to do the work, right? Because... The truth is having spoken to so many farms in singapore a lot of people who have the expertise and are committed to doing things in a clean sustainable healthy way for their customers some of them are struggling to pay rent right some of them have no way to sell their produce um, that helps them recover their costs and hence continue running a business for me, my, my principles and my commitment to them is that I will buy as much of it as possible um, and support you at a price that is fair. I won't be like a supermarket and squeeze you for, you know, the, the kinds of margins that that I want. Um, because I think as a startup, the, st- the odds are stacked against me, right? Um, I need to be able to secure both the supply as well as the demand. Um, and that's really what the platform play is for. In the long term, what tilla hopes to do is really to connect the farmers to ways that make it easier for them to improve what they're doing, to make their lives easier. So, of course, selling to my customers directly is part of that outreach, part of that education and giving consumers a choice. But I think on the back end, because I have that offtake relationship and that trust with farmers constantly, you know, Monday to Saturday, I'm coming down to your farm and picking it up. I know what's going on on your farm and I want to help, right, and being able to grow that backward integration of expertise, I think it's the beginning of every conversation, right? You need to be able to help further down the line, be it the farmers, be it the people creating systems, being the people who are starting to teach people how to grow as well. So that's all in the pipeline, and we hope that through the relationships we have with the farmers, the trust is really built not because I'm an independent tech company that's saying that, hey, I have a great solution, buy it from me. It's that, no, look, I've been buying vegetables from you for the past two months, two years, 20 years. Here's a solution I think could help you because understanding what you do on your farm, I think this is scale appropriate and tech appropriate, and it's a win-win because you trust me because I'm the one buying vegetables from you. If you do well, I do well as well. Um, And I think that kind of conversation really brings in the perspective of ecosystem play, right? You can't just be one person in a linear economy. You can't just buy from this, give it to this, take from here and give away here. Um, I think it's really providing an ecosystem play, uh, being a platform player, being able to share that expertise and intel um, across different players as well, because that's something that's, um, I think, really, really important in a space like agriculture and food.
0: So, Julian, you get got boots on the grounds with these uh, farmers. So you, you're probably one that can do a socioeconomic analytics and PhD on who they are. Tell us a little bit more about their demographics. So what's happening, for example, in, in Europe right now is, um, perhaps even in America. I'm, I'm less sure about this, but certainly in Europe is that agriculture is becoming extremely hard if you're a single farmer. It's very, it's unattractive as, yes. a, as a job yes. options.
1: Your children don't want to do it.
0: Children don't want to do it. It's a very hard life. Yes. And it's, it doesn't reward so much as a career coming out from a university. So what's the situation of the demographic here?
1: Well, there's a joke in Singapore, right? That um, if you decided to be a farmer in Singapore as a young person, your grandparents will probably come and tell you, I did this 100 years ago so that you didn't have to do it. So why are you doing it now? And in every country, um, every urbanizing city, country, people are moving away from the countryside, going to the cities for jobs. And it will remain a very, very strong problem because the prices of food are increasing in the city. But that lifestyle change and mobility is not coming to the farmers who live outside the city. And that's why there'll always be a drainage of young talent, um, going into the city to, you know, take up a job in finance or tech. That's always the most desirable lifestyle. At Urban Tiller, I think what we've seen is that you need to make it financially viable, good career progression, and there needs to be something exciting to look forward to. So that really is, I, I, you know, my business partner and I like to use the term, how do we make agriculture sexy again? And that really comes with progressive technology, accessibility to that in a, in a well-tiered, well-mannered way, as well as providing good enough financial incentives for people to stay in the job. And that means actually making good money, from growing good vegetables, right? There's of course quality differentiation between the farms. And if you do good work, you should have someone to open up markets for you um, and for you to be able to command good price for it. That's what it is. Um, and I think with Urban we see it in several ways, right? For young people who wish to enter the industry, there are several barriers. The barriers to entry are expertise of farming, um, the cost of setting up a farm and knowing the right people to help you set up your farm um, so something that we have in the pipeline for urban tiller as well is actually thinking about a model where we can lower those barriers to entry and ensure right, that the biggest question of a farmer's livelihood, which is who's going to buy my produce, is solved right? And it's Urban Tiller, hopefully, right? Um, so imagine a model where instead of you having to source a place for your farm, set it up yourself, figure out how to do everything. Um, if a player like Urban Tiller, which is a platform go-to-market strategy for farmers, can also help with the end in terms of, okay, let me provide you with a subscription service. You don't know whether you want to be a farmer. You don't, right? You don't have the money to set up a farm. Come and learn how to farm. I'll give you the infrastructure, I'll give you the expertise, I'll give you the people that you need. You grow, learn how to grow. If you have nobody to sell it to, sell it to us. We'll buy it from you at good prices. And you realize that it's a career that's viable. And then from there, you can build. Uh, I like to call this idea the we work of farming, right? Mm. Because co-working spaces remove the barrier of a new company needing to buy an office. while you can try it out and see if it works out. Uh, Why shouldn't that be the case for farming, right? You should be able to provide someone with a space, with the infrastructure, with the initial expertise, teach them how to do it and hope that they stay because who else is going to grow your food, right? And I think so much of getting young people back into agriculture is risk mitigation. It's showing them that there is an option where they don't have to risk it all and build a farm right? It's removing that risk, giving them confidence slowly, showing that their risk economic viability, um, that if they get better at what they do, they could actually be a superstar, right? They could actually be selling this produce at good prices. And there's a market that appreciates it. I think that's what's missing, right? It's really having more players like myself, um, who are able to accentuate and bring out that value of the produce, um, such that it's something that's celebrated. Right, I don't, I don't think we have that in Singapore yet.
0: So do you think it comes with a version of what I think exists in the food industry with these uh, shared kitchen, for example, yeah. and then VC models where you're going to have centralized yes. investment yes. for a certain type of field? Yes. And if so, what's what's the landscape in Singapore on that front?
1: I think in Singapore, it's still very, very early stage. Um, given the farms that I've spoken to and I work with, um, also speaking to the Singapore Food Agency, we know that there are different kinds of farms. There are farms that I would like to think are started by hobbyists. They are die hard people who, you know, they know how to farm, they figure it out, uh, but they don't have the the capital to actually start a huge farm. So they do a small farm, you know, it's licensed, they can sell to who they want, um, but they may or may not be be, you know, on track to expanding and getting the best technology to do the best things. Some people are happy with that. You also increasingly have more companies who are and identify as ag tech companies who are creating new systems to grow food in indoor vertical settings. Um, And sometimes their business model is not to make money with vegetables, they just want to sell the systems to other people, right? Um, And they have VC money, they have big investors. Um, So to them, like selling good produce may or may not be the objective. Uh, then you have mega farms who you know make big promises to larger governmental institutions who say that yeah we're going to help you increase yield by you know uh, x amount of tons per month um, and we're going to try to be able to do this for you like once we start a mega farm, right? The thing is assortment, right? Like, are you growing something that the market wants? Uh, where is that data coming from? Do you understand customer behavior? I think that's a very very fundamental point because. I think for us as consumers, we see our relationship with food. If we ever had a garden at home that we eat from, I grow it, I eat it, that's all. But I think when it comes to a commercial level, the landscape is so complex that even the people who are doing the logistics, doing the packing, doing the quality control, all of this stuff needs to be incentivized, right? It's not free labor. Um, and a lot of it needs to, to figure a way into both the farmer's life, but also the consumer's life. There needs to be some kind of reaching back.
0: So, Janine, if you had a a magic wand and you could uh, exercise that magic wand in the next five years, what would you make happen with that magic wand?
1: This is really funny and really controversial, but i thought about it for a while. So in Singapore, uh, military conscription is is necessary for for boys. Um, So when you turn 18, you need to serve for two years of your life in the military. If I had a magic wand, I would turn those two years into farming. Instead of, instead of peacetime military training, why not everyone should learn how to farm and everyone should volunteer their time uh, with a local farm um, and provide that manpower, get an experience of what it's like to provide food and grow food and all the work that goes behind um, getting food on our table. That's something I've been thinking about a lot.
0: That's actually a great, um, it's a great first principle thinking. To subsidize something which is uh, mandatory for one outcome, yes, and to maybe uh, turn it into something else that can also be useful in another outcome. Yeah, and I think it should be extended to all members of society, probably to female as well. Who, don't, agree. who don't have to do NS here, but yeah. I think the female could collaborate on that front as well.
1: Hundred percent. I think an option to volunteer with the farms, an option to see them as a as a national asset. Right, they're not private. I mean, they are private sector players. Um, they are independent farms. Arms, but still a very, very core part of this goal of producing food that we need here.
0: And so, in your experience of interacting with schools, mm-hmm. is there a part of your business where you're actually going to maybe talk to uh, cafeteria uh, food uh, arrangement in school, so that you can involve the the children, mm-hmm. the parents, mm-hmm. and the producer of food mm-hmm. uh, to use your product and to understand why, because it's at the core of health of children mm-hmm. and the core of their cognitive mm-hmm. um, capacity at school. Mm-hmm. So it's an interest, it seems, of everyone to have yeah. great food right from the start in school. Do you have a potential, um, ex- you know, expansion onto that? aspect as well?
1: I would love to. Um, so it's it's only been less than nine months that this business has been alive. So a lot of it is that I run a very lean team. Um, I would love if collaborators who wanted to do this could come on board with me. Um, a huge challenge though is that um, food in schools is something that is cost sensitive as well. So being able to maintain the quality of food while also integrating that into education, that's something that I will always care about a lot because I used to be in education and I still care a lot about how people access information about their food Um, there are a few schools that are actually opening up up space in their schools uh, for a small urban farming setup to be there and students can be involved to see how that food takes time to grow Um, and they harvest it and they use it in their own kitchens but of course that doesn't happen at a level that is big enough for it to affect sort of like more awareness of that oh you know everything here is grown here Uh, but I think it takes small steps and it takes willingness um, because it's always a conversation of, is it extra work for the teachers or is it extra work for the students? Um, and that's always competing in Singapore against uh, the excellence that we need to achieve, right? And then all of the outcomes that we want to see in education. But I think increasingly this has to be part of the conversation um, where students are not just aware of sustainability in terms of climate change, uh, but being able to break that down for them and go like, well, here are so many things that contribute. Uh, one of the things that you could think about most closely and relatably is your food.
0: Absolutely. I think there is a concept that needs to happen, which is a re- redefinition of what we mean by sustainability. So mm-hmm. sustainability, planet, climate, etc. absolutely. But what about the sustainability of the human being? Mm-hmm. And when you mention the word excellence, which I think Singapore is well known for its education level and its STEM quality, well, a brain that is very poorly fed is yeah. a brain that's never going to hyperfunction
1: sure. and is,
0: is also likely over time to degenerate mm-hmm. very fast. And mm-hmm. we already have those evidence here on the ground with early aging, brain aging, dementia is a big problem here. And we have an aging population just like the rest of the world. So I think probably players like yourselves have a big part mm-hmm. in communication, um, to the young, the, the, the middle age and the old. To see that your health is intricately connected mm-hmm. to your sustainability. And of course, at the government level, the cost of that population, because yeah. healthcare costs are embedded into, you know, government uh, budget. So I think the food is an essential discussion mm-hmm. and players like yourself have an mm-hmm. enormous part to at least to bring into the awareness Mm -hmm. while you deliver your business Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time what what, what are your thoughts on that
1: i agree um and sometimes this is a complex issue right because what people choose to eat is deeply emotional personal but also cultural right so i think on urban tiller we try to be as inclusive as possible in terms of providing yeah you know you might be someone who would like to Take your leafy greens in the form of salad but you know for a lot of the population in singapore it might be leafy greens that they can be stir frying they can be adding to their stews their foods and we try as best as our possible uh, as best as we can in that sense in a process of curation In a process of bringing that quality, but also saying that you might like this, this is how you can use it. This is how you make it the most amenable. Um, And how do you sort of adjust your diet to really uh, make sure that you're taking all the the nutrition that you need? What are avenues that I can give you a complete meal and a complete diet? I'm still a bit away from that. Uh, I think there's still a lot more work to be done, Uh, but really making sure that there's a well curated amount of food, because that's what we don't get in a city, right? In a city, we get abundance. You go to the mall, there's everything you want. But I think curation forms such a key part of going like, okay, here's food, here's here's what it should taste like, right? And if, if it does taste good to you, it's also good for you. So it's a win-win, right? Compared to, you know, the lack of curation in supermarkets. Sometimes, you know, you've never tasted something before. You buy it, you bring it home and you're disappointed and you don't try it ever again. Um, and I think that's always the conversation that we have about thriving and, and about, you know, living a well-lived life. Um, it's being able to have access to this, these kinds of things. Um, but it takes so much effort and it takes the collaboration of so many players. Um, and the question is really who pays for it, right? Is, is there something that needs to be done uh, from a governmental level, from a, you know, a trade organisation kind of level, where people are actually contributing to that cost of food so that a country can enjoy that level of um, comfort and nutrition?
0: So what's next um, for you and for your project in the near future?
1: Yeah, I think in parallel What Tilla looks forward to is expanding to different parts of Asia and Asia-Pacific. There are increasingly similar cities in terms of demographic, um, people rapidly urbanizing, and food production also urbanizing. So becoming a plug-and-play platform, both for consumers in those cities, um, being a good support go-to-market player for the farmers there who are coming up, um, especially in countries where, you know, like we mentioned just now, agriculture is losing its luster as a career option. How do we then support those economies where agriculture used to make up a huge part of it, um, being able to modernize and optimize that in a sustainable way as well. Uh, The other thing is really building up a platform where we can best support our farmers wherever we work, deepening our expertise, being able to develop systems in-house that we can use to support these farmers as best as possible, not just to diversify their assortment that they can grow, uh, charge better prices for their produce, and ultimately do things more sustainably.
0: And so the, these countries that you mentioned around, what would be an equivalent of country that you have in mind in the region?
1: So I think Singapore is always an anomaly because Singapore has you know, experienced this governmental push when it comes to increase in food production. Um, I think there are other countries in Southeast Asia and Asia Pacific, um, even places like New Zealand, right? If we go that far, uh, places like Japan, same aging population, although they have a very different agricultural history. Um, but how how do these industries modernize um, and how are people with farming and ag tech technology players coming in uh, to try to encourage the growth of urban farms, because I think that's uh, something that's coming up everywhere. Uh, we can't deny it, right? And I think uh, it's something we're seeing in the Middle East as well, uh, where countries that are mostly desert are coming up with these mega farms indoors and all the same right you require a brand new business model to make financial sense of that of that Uh, when it comes to building building a mega farm indoors paying for air conditioning paying for light paying for water and all these things how do you then you know make profit or even break even by selling produce which is traditionally already something that runs on such low margins
0: and I think the worry would be also the loss of integrity. So you, you've mentioned the idea that being very proud that, you know, your food is actually very, um, very uh, pure in terms of micronutrients. It hasn't been, um, you know, compromised by the food chain and the yeah. length of time. So do you see a potential by scaling something would actually corrupt the integrity of either the food or the food producer, the farmer in this case?
1: I think that's a people challenge. Um, It's a business challenge as much as it is a like people challenge. It's a team building challenge. Um, It's how we set those things in place, set them at the core of the business, and are able to train up people who are committed to the same ideals um, and also really, really committed to the farmers. I think in the way that I've done things, um, you know, and I could be very naive and very idealistic about this, but making sure that the team stays together, I think, is the base of any business as sustainability, right? Like, how do you build something to last? How do you build something for good? I think that's always, it comes back to the people.
0: So on this note, we always ask our guests in this podcast um, about their own weird sauce. That's the title of the podcast, For Life. So Julian, what would be your weird sauce?
1: Hmm. I think for me so far, um, in my very, very short life, uh, is really talking to as many as people, as many people as you can, talking to as many people as you can, listening to them, and starting to develop real care for them. Um, Because you can build a network and think of your network um, in the sense that I can use them when I need them. But there's also a different way of thinking about network. I think the only way I've stayed motivated in my work is that I genuinely care about the farmers I've met. Um, and I care about their livelihood, I care about their sustainability. So I think networking is not just for your own good, right? It's not just for mutual benefit, but also I think it's a very core part of what makes you wake up in the morning. It's who does your work impact and do you actually care about those people? Um, So they're giving you something in return, right, which is something to care about.
0: That's great. So it sounds to me like it's meaning. It's being meaningful and being impacting other people meaningfully and yeah. in a positive way.
1: I don't want to say meaning or meaningfully because that's <laughs> a very, very base and non-nuanced answer. Uh, but starting to care about people because you could care about so many things and so many parts of their lives. Um, but there are very, very tangible aspects that affect their, you know, the ability for someone else to do what they want to, um, to be empowered to self-actualize.
0: And do you have? Um, to close this conversation, which was really um, very interesting and very enlightening. Uh, Do you have a call for action or do you have a a wish that you want the audience to either get involved with, connect with you, Mm -hmm. or connect with a a piece of that that big puzzle that, Mm -hmm. that food is?
1: Of course so you can always connect with me on linkedin email and everything can be um, arranged that way but of course the other one is really start asking yourself what you're having on your plate for dinner tonight Um, and start asking yourself can you trace the journey of that food Um, this is a really interesting activity that we like to do with our students in the past Um, you know just pick out an ingredient on your plate Can you figure out a story? Can you sort of trace it back to its origins? What kind of interesting things do you notice? Um, And that starts to tell you the story of so many other concerns, be it economic, be it um, sustainability, be it emotional labor. Um, And it tells you so much about the journey of the food that we eat and we take for granted. Um, If you're in Singapore, try out Urban Tiller. We deliver island-wide and really, you will taste the difference for yourself.
0: Jolene, thank you very much for your time and this very enjoyable conversation. I wish you all the best.
1: Thank you so much. For your
0: endeavor going forward. Thank you so much. If this conversation stopped you in your track, share it with your network. You never know whose life you might change for the better. Thank you for listening. Stay curious about our next guest and stay curious about life.